If you're looking for some laser beam focus and you'd like to go full-time into the business, you're going to thoroughly love this episode. Let's go! Welcome to the Russell Westcott Podcast, helping real estate investors like you acquire the inspiration, knowledge, and skills that you need to start, grow, and scale the real estate investing portfolio of your dreams. All right, ladies and gentlemen, how are you doing? Welcome back to the podcast. What are we? Let me check my notes. Episode 106. We're cranking them out one a week, and maybe we'll come up with a few more in-between sessions here as well. So, so first and foremost, I hope you're having yourself a wonderful day or wonderful week. Or if you're just discovering this podcast, please come on in. Welcome in. And, uh, you know, guys, one thing I'd, I'd always like to do, and I've probably mentioned this multiple times throughout all my episodes, is please share the show. If you've found that you've received some value or some encouragement or some inspiration or it made you think about something or made you or you learned something or maybe just transformed something that you were looking at and now you're changing a direction, share the show. Share it with somebody who's maybe looking to get into real estate investing. Maybe, you know, as we start getting back into more live environments and you start, you know, networking with real people again. I have three speaking engagements lined up already um, upcoming. And as you're starting to get out there with more people in real life, you know, could you please mention my show? I would be greatly appreciative if you'd like to do that. Okay. Now, if you've been following along on the podcast for the last, you know, better part of almost a couple of years coming on now, 100 plus episodes, you'll find one of the things I always seek and one of the things I look for is I look for people with experience. I look for people that have been in the business for a long time because one of the things is, you know, I'm just like you. I'm a student. I want to learn. I want to keep elevating and keep growing myself as a real estate investor. So I want to seek people that have done more. I want to seek people with more experience, more wisdom, more insight, more knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong. I think more and lots of experience is amazing. But I also think that there's an incredible opportunity to learn from people that have just gotten started. That's one of the things that you will find on my podcast is I, I pick usually two types of paths. I pick one of somebody who's just getting started and helping them bust through some of their obstacles versus their limitations. And then also seek out wisdom of people who have busted through on their journey and have moved forward with velocity. So I think there's something to be learned for just getting started. And I think there's something to be learned for somebody who's been in the trenches over the past, you know, 20 plus years. And I think the real magic is if you can be in the trenches and you can be in this business for 20, 30, 40 plus years, and you still have a beginner's mindset, you still have a beginner's attitude that you treat everything that you do with a beginner's mindset, that excitement, that passion, that enthusiasm of just somebody who's just getting started. That is a wonderful combination. Somebody who has the experience, somebody who has the wisdom and treats it like they've just done it for the first time ever. Okay, with all that as a backdrop, I have a wonderful opportunity to share a guest here with you of probably somebody who you've not heard of. And I think I made the comment in our conversation together. I'm here and I'm going to introduce you to a a fellow out of Edmonton uh, named Chris Davies. Chris is, you know, if you do get a chance to check out the YouTube channel and you do see the interview with Chris and I, you'll take a look at it and go, oh, Chris, he's just such a baby. Russ, I thought you were looking for people with gray hairs and, you know, people that have been in the business forever, you know, ladies and gentlemen, both men and women that have been in the business forever. You know, he's just such a baby. But, but here's the thing. Chris has truly been in the business his entire life. He's a third 
generational, third generation, I guess that's the best way to say it, third generation real estate investor, grandpa, father, and also himself. So it's been in his blood for more than three generations. So right down to some of the earliest memories Chris shared was talking about you know, collecting the rents with his dad and collecting and rolling the coins way back in the day when we actually had money that you could actually, you know, the coin money and and the laundry uh, rooms and stuff like that, rolling the coins in the thing and hauling out pails of coins from the laundry machine and all those kind of wonderful things. So, so Chris and I dive deep into, you know, what it takes to be successful in real estate. You know, one of the things that, um, we talk about fairly early in our conversation, we talk about staying power, the ability to be able to weather storms, the ability to be able to run the course of the race, the ability to be able to stick it out through no matter what happens. The staying power as a real estate investor is more important than the growth of the real estate investing. If you're there at the end of the marathon is more important than how fast you got out of the gate or how fast you did the middle section of your run. It's the longevity. It's the staying power that matters most in this game of doing long-term real estate investing. So we talk a lot about um, what it takes to succeed long-term. We talk an awful lot about Chris's uh, profession that he's in now. He's pivoted over into commercial real estate on the commercial sales side of real estate. And he is an expert. Like when it comes down to it, you know, I used in the opening tease about being, you know, laser beam focused. That's what Chris is. He has a laser beam focus attention, a laser beam focus of what he's doing and who he helps, who he serves. And in my opinion, he's one of the best around at doing that. Now, here's a question I have for you is within your real estate investing, are you laser beam focused. If I came to you and I asked the question is, what do you specialize in? What are you known for? What is your expertise? Are you able to tell with as much confidence as Chris tells in this story about what your specialty is? And it's okay that you don't serve everybody. It's okay that you don't help everybody. It is totally okay. But the people that you do help, you want to be known as the best of the best. Okay. So that's the lot. We talk a lot about those things. Uh, we talk an awful lot about multifamily investing. We talk a lot about the value chain investing, which Chris talks a lot about in his book. And you will hear about the book that Chris has written. It's uh, Apartment Buildings That Outperform, How to Build a Multifamily Portfolio That Lasts. We talk an awful lot about that book and some of the lot of key lessons in there. We talk an awful lot about, you know, what's happening in the Edmonton marketplace, you know, because that's of an interest to me. And that's an interest of a lot of people on both my podcast, but also a lot of investors, North American wide, even worldwide, there's a lot of capital that's flowing in to Alberta again, from a worldwide marketplace. We talk an awful lot about that. We talk about being in the business full time. We talk an awful lot about some, some, <laughs> some, uh, what would be the best way to put it? So maybe some horror stories of dealing with tenants and dealing with properties for better part of as many years as Chris has done, three generations worth of dealing with tenants. Now, I'm going to be right up front. I'm going to put a disclaimer on this. There's a, a few colorful language in this a little bit. Not, I don't think there's any swear words. I don't think we talked any swear words. Can't remember. But there's some colorful language. 
especially when it comes to, uh, to dealing with some rougher tenant profiles. We talk about some, you know, some dire situations, tenants dying and, you know, just some, you know, tenants beating the crap out of place and buying properties in really bad areas that have bad tenant profiles and things like that. So we go into them on the surface. You may look at it and sit there and go, geez, uh, there was an awful lot of negativity around real estate. I thought real estate was all supposed to be unicorns and butterflies and rainbows and daisies and all this kind of wonderful stuff. Now, real estate can be ugly sometimes. Real estate as a business can be challenging. Problems happen. Mistakes happen. Deals go sideways. Tenants, you know, do a number on your place. But here's the question that you really want to find out is not that is it going to happen to you because it will. What are you going to do about it? You know, if something goes off rails, you're going to find out what you're made of. If something goes off rails, you're going to find out what's inside you to dig deep, to push forward and keep forging on. All right. Well, you know what? I could go on and on in just this intro alone, but, uh, you know, this conversation was deep and I had a wonderful time. So, Chris, I'm not sure if you listen to the podcast. I hope you do. I just wanted to thank you once again for stepping up, being part of this and make sure you stick around right to the very end, guys. I've got a wonderful, inspirational message to leave off today's podcast as well. And with all that being said, let's please help me welcome Mr. Chris Davies. All right, Chris Davies, how are you doing, my friend? Long time no see. Welcome to the show today, yeah. my friend. Thanks very much, Russell. Hey, Chris, we're being just a little too formal here. We got like, I, I had to get up and I actually <laughs> ironed a shirt here today almost. So it's like... <laughs> I have to admit, I was wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt today because the majority of my day is just like in the office making calls and doing paperwork. Yeah. Um, I'm not a suit guy on the best of days, though. Well, I haven't I haven't worn a suit or a tie for for quite a while actually, and I was I actually sit there. I, I gave away most of my ties were actually being used as yoga belts for I was trying to practice <laughs> yoga, and I said so. I just gave away most of my ties, and but Chris, we had this on the calendar for a couple of weeks now, and I've been just thoroughly looking forward to it. It's been far yeah. too long since you and I have chatted. And I look at this young man in my in my camera here, and uh, people, if you're listening to it on podcast, it won't do us justice, but I find the YouTube videos, uh, you'll see Chris here in a second. But you're a veteran in this real estate game, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Like, how long has it been since you, your earliest memory within real estate? Oh, earliest memory. Well, so there's two things that are like my early yardstick in the sand. The first time I ever got a paycheck for doing real estate stuff. I was 12. So it was 1994. And it was uh, at spring break. It was like this time of year, I got paid for sweeping a parking lot. Earliest memory, I think I was probably four or five, because there's a, a facility downtown at Edmonton called the George Spadey Center. It's one of the very few shelters where they will take guests in who are still drunk. And dad stopped to replace a mailbox and he locked me in the truck and said, don't touch anything. And I was like, all right, I was five. I had no idea. And I watched the guy come out, meet his buddy, and they punched a hole in a Lysol can to drink it. And I was like, what the hell did I just see? And that one has stuck with me. And I still, you know, we don't manage the Spady Center anymore or manage anything, but I talk to the people who run it now and other places in the area and you see things that cannot be unseen, yeah. but that would have been probably the earliest memory. It's still there. Oh, uh, now, so you've been in real estate 
pretty much all your life and generational in many respects, haven't it been? Mm-hmm. And how far back does it go? How far back does the family lineage within real estate go within your family tree? The, yeah, the unbroken lineage would be grandpa. And he started buying buildings with friends in the early 70s. He bought a bunch of apartment buildings. He helped fund uh, some projects with a friend whose company is still involved in real estate. We did find one other funny thing, especially having just gone through COVID. Grandpa's grandpa, or maybe only one generation removed, owned a hotel in a town like a town like around Bruderheim or Lamont, just north of Edmonton, which they actually turned into a temporary hospital during the 1917 Spanish flu epidemic. Wow. So I need to dig that picture out of like the family scrapbook somewhere. So in one way or another, it's been a long time. But yeah. grandpa, dad, me. Yeah. Well, how old are you now? Uh, I'm 40 this summer. 40. So suffice it yeah. to say, you've been in real estate almost your whole life, really. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I ran away from it a couple of times. My undergrad's molecular biology. I traveled a couple of times, but yeah. I keep coming back to my destiny. Now, and your your kids, are they starting to get involved in this too? Yeah, a little. I mean, it's funny because they profoundly understand what it is that I do. Yeah. And sometimes that's because, I mean, the majority of what I do today is to sell apartment buildings, which is feast or famine. So sometimes they know, like, we're on a budget and sometimes they know it's party time. Yeah. But the stuff I own, <laughs> you know, they recognize both parts that fundamentally, the way I think of all my stuff, I love like Don Campbell's old line, we are rental housing providers. They recognize that whether it's my investments or whether it's my work as a broker, we provide homes for people. And so... When I go deliver gift baskets or fix something, I almost always bring a kid along. I don't do that very much anymore because I have managers. But um, yeah, they are often right there with me holding tools or talking to clients. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, just as an FYI, I creep people's Facebook profiles before I jump on and I <laughs> I, uh, I grab some uh, photos of things that are really probably important to to each of our guests. And yes. what a beautiful looking family that you have. And Chris, that hair. Where did all that hair come I from? I know. I know. I know. Actually, uh, pink shirt on the side. We just got his hair cut. Those are pictures from this fall. Right. I don't know. And and they all love the super long hair, like the older two. It's uh, it's probably my wife's thing. I don't know. Either yeah. of us have blonde hair. Well, it's just, you know, the beautiful picture of you and you and Megan there. And, and just make sure you say yeah. hello to Megan for me, please. It's been far I too shall. long since I've I shall. had a chance uh, to see her as and, well. Hey, Professional photos are worth it. We buy, like, we have a photographer who does, like, little mini, like, 20-minute sessions every year. We buy one every year. Great idea for presents. Now, now, before we dive into uh, the meat and potatoes, and not that this hasn't been meat and potatoes already, but um, I have a fun, quick story about uh, Chris and I of doing a recording. So, and I was racking my brain trying to remember how long ago it was. It was probably 13, 12, 13 years ago, maybe, maybe even more. I was toying. Uh, how long did you think that was back in, in the rain days, back out on the farm, out on the, on the yeah. property out there? I, I would have been living in Kelowna. Okay. And I moved to Kelowna in the fall of 07, and we moved away in the summer of 09. So okay. somewhere, 2008. So let's call it 08. So yeah. that's what, 14 years? 14. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so here's the story. So I was doing a little bit of interviewing of experts at that time and we had a little you know pretty janky uh, setup for microphones and stuff and we were trying to record this kind of stuff and in in essence it was early podcast it was before podcast was even a thing 14 Mm -hmm. some years ago and we put it out to the members and i never i think i did about a dozen or so episodes and i never stuck with it 
Chris, we should have stuck with it. We could have been the one oh. getting the Joe Rogan $100 million contracts, if I, you will, right? <laughs> we were definitely ahead of our time. I don't know that I want all the gong show that comes with the Joe Rogan podcast thing these days, but it is a lot more fun to do with video. And we, you know, guys like you and I, we were already messing with this a lot beforehand. Yep. COVID's just made it so that all your guests have all the tools all the time. Yep. It's opened a lot of fun doors, but uh, my version of that story too, because I learned one thing that day that stuck with me. You had a whiteboard on the wall beside your desk and it had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you only had one word on each day. And I was like, what is this? And you said, that's my to-do list. I only get to do one thing a day, really. But then I've done 200 things a year and that has stuck with me forever. Yeah. Wow. I, I should maybe rekindle that again. Actually, my my, my yeah. list has gone to five. I said every day I, I have a list of five things that I must get I done. Back to, Non-negotiable. As a digital guy, back to like yeah. the paper book. Yeah, I, I do too. I use a high-performance mm -hmm. planner and it's five things I need to get done every day, which are in alignment with my 90-day priorities, which align with my 12-month goals, which align with my values, my vision of where I want to get to. Now, totally. do we get to every day? No, it's we're not perfect, but at least we have the intention of starting the day that way. Yes. I also hired a new coach this year. I know we're getting down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I yeah, hired please. a new coach for my work as a real estate broker and she is kicking my ass, man. She's really great. It's really expensive. But, you know, if you want to perform at an elite level, you need to be willing to put the money and the time and the effort in to get to the elite level. And it will challenge the hell out of you. But it's been very worthwhile and very strange. Now, I'm a firm believer in coaching. I have many coaches myself and I kick many a person's butt myself. Sometimes, Absolutely. you know, a good coach needs to be coached as well because you can fall into a little bit of a trap. Um, I, I read something just recently. James Clear, the guy who wrote the um, Atomic Habits, said that sometimes it's coaches on my bedside table right oh, now. It's it's a phenomenal must read book. And one of his quotes he said was, "Sometimes coaches forget what it's like to be a student." And you need to have that mindset of being a student and being a beginning investor and being in that again, because sometimes you can normalize you've been in a business for all your life and you forget what it's like to actually be a student or to transact properties. And you, you know, you fall, not fall asleep at the wheel, but you have ebbs and flows of things and, you know, you get stuck mm -hmm. and sometimes you just need to jump and jolt yourself into some action as well. All right. Okay, Chris. So. Your name will probably not ring a bell for a lot of people, which I think is a challenge. But, you know, you you authored the book, Apartment Buildings That Outperform, Chris Davies, right there. Wonderful book. It's it's one of those reads that it's, I call it um, short but profound. It's not a an in-depth war and peace novel about everything about multifamily investing, but every word in there is absolutely profound on that. So guys, I highly encourage you if you are looking to, you know, get into multifamily or you're a multifamily investor, pick up Chris's book, you know, apartment buildings that outperform, dive into it and read it. Okay. Any other books on the work for you, Chris? We have slowly been playing actually with a, another book that's actually, or the idea of a book about intergenerational wealth, but my style of writing and researching involves a lot of uh, a long interview process, and uh, we've got a lot of other priorities for the moment. Yes. Also, the apartment buildings, the, yeah. the uh, original website for that book is currently down because we're redesigning everything. Okay. So if people want a copy, drop me an email or a, a note on social, and I'll send you a direct link, or you can catch it on Amazon usually. 
Yeah, that's what I just jumped over here. It is definitely on Amazon. I pulled that up here too. So uh, it's in stock, obviously, right? $22.29. One of the best 23 bucks you'll spend on getting that book for there for yourself. So drop me a line directly and it'll be 20 bucks plus shipping. Oh, well, well, since since we're here, Chris, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Chris at chrisdavies.ca. There you go. So if you know your name, you can easily get a hold of you, right? <laughs> or you can Google me. I'm all over the place. Yeah. Well, you are and you aren't all at the same time for as much as experience that yes. you have. You know, and don't take this the wrong way, Chris, because I think you're a gift and you need to be you need to spread your wings a little bit more. You're a big fish in a smaller pond. Would that be a fair assessment? Totally. Yeah. And I knew the minute you said where you were going with it. And the funny thing about my business, and I think this is true for a lot of the investors who who listen to your show. I don't want to call it a show, but I guess this is the the Russell Westcott show, is that I'm a specialist. Specialists get paid more than generalists. Specialists find better deals than generalists. I am not out there to be well-known by investors. I'm out there to be well-known by people who own apartment buildings. That's it. I want those guys to know who I am. Everyone else is kind of a bonus. Well, that is a a rifle approach. We're going to be using lots of fishing and hunting analogies here, aren't we today, Chris? Yes, I am a sniper. Yes. (laughs) Yes. You know, more than a bazooka, if you will, right? Totally. Yeah. And and it's funny. I mean, like I say it that way to be as totally as direct and kind of exclusive as I can because it's the type of single-minded focus you need to get the types of listings that I want to sell in the real world. Yep. You know, I'm more social than that and less of a jerk. No, I, I totally get it. business brain has to be right there. Yeah. Now, just as an FYI, here's something I just made note of just recently was um, somebody who sent me some of your listing packages to give them a second opinion on. And they also, you know, there's a, I would consider you of the new style of realtor, commercial realtor in Edmonton, more in the the new style. Um, They sent me your listing package and they sent me, you know, quote unquote, the de facto people way back in the day that were the best of the best way back in the day. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm comparing the two packages side by each. And I'm going, holy moly, Chris, you just blew them out of the water with the information, yeah. the presentation, the package, the details, the, you know, this is a wrong term, but I'm going to use it anyways, the realness of the numbers oh, yeah. of things versus, versus that. And the other one was just, it was it was such a night and day difference on the work you put it. You obviously put a lot of work into the presentation package when you're listing somebody's apartment building for them. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And we, yeah, we try really hard to get the right info in and make it look good. That's gotten easier in the last 10 or 12 years that I've been doing this because I have, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Fiverr before Fiverr was a thing. I hired one of our old marketing girls to our packages. I have, you know, another guy I work with and an analyst. So like we work really hard. Funny thing that's happening, which is you know, people in Ontario will get this in a way that people in Alberta won't. Things are changing just incredibly rapidly right now. And not necessarily in terms of like prices going up, but even just in the last six months, expenses. My utilities are up 80% year over year. My insurance is up more than that. And so I can't use 2020's numbers. I need today's numbers. And not all of my competitors are willing to beat owners with as large a stick as I am. Yeah. No, I am. Yes. I just had a conversation with a investment partner today about, geez, our, our utility numbers have doubled in the course of a year. And 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to get political here for a second, but it sounds like there's another tax coming in in a couple more days here. So I'm going to date this in April 2022. But mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. It went from a point where our utilities used to be a little bit of a, a profit center to now it's a subsidy. And I think some tenants mm-hmm. are going to have some very interesting rental increases upcoming. Yes. Yeah. And we're, we're starting to see that. It's part of the reason why I'm using some of the analysts I am on our numbers. Not only do we want to have great materials and all the data together for someone before they get into the deal, we need to iterate on those numbers quickly. And sometimes if you're in you know, Toronto and people are bidding things up, that's pricing. Rents are about to change real fast. You know, all of it. The 21st century is finally kind of really coming to commercial real estate that way. Well, and hopefully that you're you're not in a jurisdiction where that you're capped with your rent increases at one point two percent. Yeah, one point two percent. I know it's. Uh, but you know the funny thing too, though, is even though you and I say that and we love that, the longer I'm in real estate, the more pure commercial real estate I do. So I mean, we don't. I don't do leasing. Uh, you know. Or, or anything like that. But if something's fully occupied, we sell investment. I have an industrial building for sale right now. Anytime you get into those types of assets, they're fully triple net. The tenant pays everything. That gets more and more appealing, maybe as I get older. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Not not interested in jumping through as many hoops. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to dive into that map that's behind you uh, of there. We're going to talk a little bit about that city. For those of you listening on podcasts, it's a map of Edmonton. And you were the first person I ever heard coin the terminology, the Black Triangle of Death in Edmonton. Yes. And um, I wish I would have heard, listened to you <laughs> a long time ago. Like I think I owned... 17 places in the Black Triangle of Death. And uh, I'll be honest, mm-hmm. it lived up to every syllable of its name. I don't think we called it death. I think we just said the Black Triangle of East Edmonton. That was oh, like, well, maybe again, that I, was put, I put death into post. it. Maybe <laughs> I added the death. <laughs> of the day, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's like when you, when you know when you have the police on speed dial and they're calling you quite regularly with tenant issues, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit mm-hmm. of a... And, and here's the thing, as I'm seeing a lot of people coming into Edmonton with price blinders on, if you will, pro forma blinders. Yes. That totally. they, they don't care about the tenant profile. They don't, they, they see a property. Oh, it's $110,000 for a townhome and it's $1,100 rent. Oh, I'll buy a hundred. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> On, and you know what? A lot of people will go after those like $60,000 condos, like converted condo apartment units. Our mutual friend, Robert McLeod was managing one. The cops came in chasing a guy who did a, an armed robbery no one knows who shot who, but the caretaker ended up dead, was just in another room and got shot. It's like, there's wow. there's a couple places with problems. Yeah. yeah. Not every area is the same in Edmonton. Very much street by street right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So before we get into that, I know I glossed over a little bit here, but... But you have such a wonderful background and a story here. And, and it's I'm going to take a, a little chunk. I'm, gonna, I'm encouraging everybody to go get the book, uh, Apartment Buildings That Outperform. But you hit the people over the head with a sledgehammer right in the introduction. And you talk about uh, building a staying power. Tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, what staying power is, where that came from, and why it's important to you. Yeah, and it's funny that you ask the question that way, given what's occurred for me in the last five years, like since I I think I wrote the book in 2014. The original reason is that, you know, 
my grandpa, Bill, bought a bunch of buildings in the 70s, helped fund some friends. He started a little empire. I think he had 15 or 17 properties. Some of them were land assemblies, some were apartment buildings. And when the recession in the 80s kicked in, he lost them all but three. And so, you know, the, the thought of like for anyone who aspires to buy an apartment building, imagine putting your keys in the mail and sending them back to the bank quite literally. Yeah, that was the, the, the term jingle mail was was created 100%. at that time. Yeah. And it's yeah. And it, it's back, you know, in varying levels since, you know, let's say 2015 when the price of oil, you know, bottomed, went into free fall the first time. The fifth time, depending on how you count. So that was big. And grandpa, you know, grandpa was always pretty open about what happened. And we were always, you know, he started the management company, then mom joined, then dad joined. And that was like my whole life. Like we'd have family dinner at grandma's house and we would talk about politics and real estate and things. If you've ever watched the movie Margin Call or The Big Short, the day that the whole thing goes kablooey, Lehman Brothers went to zero. Technically, the day asset backed commercial paper collapsed. I bought a townhouse. I was under contract. Mom and dad were did a big reno on a flip. And I was like, let me, let me buy it. It's simple. It's I already know what you got. Uh, Peggy from Peter Kinch's office called me in the morning and said, yeah, you've got 100% interest only loan from TD. We just need CMHC to stamp it. That afternoon, she called me back and said, the markets have exploded. No one knows what's going on. The best I can do for you is 30% down. And a, I think I got a 35-year amortization at the time. But I went from zero down to 30% down, and I did the deal anyways. But the first thing I did after I hung up with my mortgage broker, I called grandpa. I was like, I didn't call my parents on that one. I called grandpa. I was like, what do you do in these situations? I don't even remember what he told me. You know, I knew that when things went that bad, the guy with the answer who had more experience than anyone else was grandpa. You know, that's like... What will save you in those types of situations is that's really what staying power is for. It's what do you do when everything goes wrong? Equity, number yeah. one, location, number two. Yeah, that, That's it, man. That's what staying power. That's what longevity. That's how you get there. You have to have the property in the right place because you can't change that one. But you need equity. Oh, and you need, um, you know, and I think the way you framed it exactly in the book was staying power is more important than growth. Yes. And everybody is very, very quick to say, I've bought hundred thousands and millions of properties and I'm on the road to a billion and all that kind of stuff. Everybody's quick to say their growth numbers and where they're going. Very few people would sit there and go and say, you know what, I'm at a 27% loan to value and I have, you know, 47,000 in cash flow. I can, I can weather whatever storm I want. And the, you know, one funny thing, and, and I, I kind of despaired the lack of that because all we see on social media is I have this under contract. I did this deal. I need these investors. And I'm always like, guys, slow down. Like, stop acting like such an idiot. Buy a building and don't tell anyone. Here's an idea. I was kind of despairing the lack of, prudence maybe or humility and there's this new cmhc program for financing apartment buildings that will potentially let you do 95 percent loan to value and i have a you know a heartening number of clients who are like no that's just too much <laughs> like, i want the rates and the other benefits that come with those loans 
But I wanted it about like in the long run, like 65 or 70% loan to value and super low rates and long AMs. So I get the cash flow, but they recognize the safety that comes with equity. Yeah. Like you can't eat it. So it always feels weird to have a lot of equity in your portfolio. But, you know, when it's a rainy day, man, they are the hip waiters that will keep you afloat. No, no. So grandpa went through the challenging times and I imagine that impacted your family throughout the time and mm-hmm. and your dad you know if you get a chance to please say hello for me please do it's one of the nicest gentlemen you will ever meet in your life you guys had a property management company throughout all those years what was that business like to be in the pg version please chris <laughs> well so yeah i think the i'd have to ask dad some of this story you know the property management company came about as a result of the recession largely speaking which is that dad was a carpenter and he was out of work and we had properties of our own to manage and grandpa just started calling friends and asking if we could manage more. It's funny as a, like as a, a lot of family businesses and as a kid, you get completely wrapped up in them. You have no concept of what it's like to not be part of the family business. Even when I like went to university, started studying science, I always worked for my parents, you know, weekends or in the summer except for like maybe one summer. I'm pretty sure I worked for them every summer throughout university. But you get used to doing, I I think, literally every job you can do in management. I think everything I could do that didn't require a license at that stage and probably into the gray area on a couple. But there's a lot of painting fences and sweeping parking lots. And then you get into bigger renos and then there's dead bodies occasionally. And then, you know, slightly larger project management. Property. I haven't told a lot of property management stories in a long time, so I don't remember any of my good ones right now, man. Well, you were you were one of the first ones to be able to do a how-to program, a how-to guide on your blog about what to do if your tenant in your property dies. Mm, yes, and, totally. and lo and behold, and actually, the apartment is. I had one of my first places ever. My tenant in the basement died. The first property I ever bought in one two seven one nine hundred twenty second Street in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Tenant basement suite diet, and uh, I lo and behold, you wrote that article right around the same time. <laughs> I'm glad it could be helpful. It's funny yeah. after we did that. I don't claim that we are the inspiration for it, but uh, the apartment association here actually started to put on seminars run by like professional biohazard guys, saying, "Here's what you do with the dead body." The Cole's notes: call the police; they'll take care of the dead body for you, and then you can get a disaster cleanup company or whatever. Like. It is a biohazardous materials site, but <laughs> yes. call the cops first. Don't worry about messing with the dead guy. Yeah, don't, uh, you know, at that time it was, my comment was, you know, what does your manager do? <laughs> like phone your property manager first is one of the first conversations exactly. you have too. Exactly. So. Uh, one funny story from before you mentioned like owning a lot of stuff in the black triangle. I learned a tip from a paralegal about a year ago because I have lots of clients who pick up sketchy things. The case in question, they owned an apartment building and they had bought the house next door, but had not closed on it yet. Abandoned or empty house they were going to renovate. So I got the other neighbors to keep an eye on it. It was in Eastwood in the Black Triangle. And so I get a call one day that says, hey, yeah, there are people in the basement doing whatever. And I say, okay. I go call the police non-emergency line. And they say, yeah, we'll send a car around. And I say, great. Let me know. I'll go let them in. I'll go open the door so you don't break down the door. Cops go in. <laughs> they come back out. And the one guy is like starting, like starting to cry. He's laughing so hard. There's like a 25 year old Aboriginal gentleman and a 40 something year old Aboriginal female. And they're like, when we went down the stairs, 
she was just standing there full naked like full nether like nothing sexual going on she was just like standing there like dead naked between the two of them they had 36 outstanding warrants so the tip is this normally i would call the police switchboard like non-emergency line and they'd send a squad around whenever don't do that call crime stoppers crime stoppers will do the same thing for you same outcome but if those people go to jail, I get a cash reward. <laughs> <laughs> Tax-free cash reward. They give you a, a number, and eventually they call and say, go to a TD, give them this number, and they'll give you a check, or they'll give you cash, not even a check. Yep. Uh, yeah, I never considered that type of revenue enhancement for my properties, but there you go. When did you guys um, divest of your management company? When did you sell the, the management company? 2007. Okay. Yeah, my parents, we had moved out to a farm in the mid-90s, and we moved back into town, and they got rid of the management company around the same time, just a big life reorganization. And we sold it to, you know, it was Davies Management and Realty. We sold it to a really nice guy named Jason Delaney, who did a really great job with it for five years, and here's the lesson. He sold it on to a gentleman who does not provide the same level of service, let us say, and... I would be very happy to have my name off that company. That's what I was going to say. Is, is your name is still on? It's still on there, isn't it? Davy, it's Davies Management, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even own the trademark to your own name <laughs> in many no. ways, in that business case. Trans- yeah. 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 And I, uh, I did, you know, there's a reason why I don't yet refer to my team publicly as like, you know, the Davies Real Estate Group is actually as a corporate name and it's trademarked, but perfectly happy to fly under the Remax banner and not have to worry about that again. Definitely yep. going to think more carefully, should I ever sell it about who controls the name? Yep. No, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I remember, and it was mostly from your your dad, and you were a lot of the behind the scenes of this too, is how many just those little, tiny, little, you know, renovation tips or maintenance tips or just things that Brent would always share that just, you know, they mm-hmm. seem like so simple on the surface, but they were huge, especially when you put it over 12, 24, 72 unit apartment building. Each one of those things just added up to huge things. And he was a very big proponent. Mm-hmm. He owned his own management company, but he was also a very big proponent on self-management at the time too. Mm-hmm. And definitely. It's just one of those things I just don't, I won't do. I just can't do it. I can't do manage. I can't do property management. I'm just not equipped for it. I don't have the patience for it. I I just can't do it. Um, so anytime, yeah, anytime somebody who, who does do that as a business, I just, you know, hats off, salute to each person that does property management in that respect. Oh, 100%. And it's funny, like people are always asking, you know, what management company do you recommend? It changes, man. And property managers burn out, I would guess, on average every two years. And so really, you're looking for people and they might hop around between firms and whatnot. But it is a moving target. And we're right now in the middle of doing a big call to a whole bunch of management companies, making sure we know the right people and what properties they'll manage, what areas they'll manage, because everybody does something different. Yep. Well, think about it from a start. And this is the analogy I use. As a property management company, nobody is happy. The tenants are usually unhappy, 
and the owners mm-hmm. are usually unhappy. So from both sides of your business, you're getting people that are unhappy because the owner is either complaining that something's not going well or why is it vacant or why is this bill too high or why did you pay $300 oh. to get a locksmith in? I could have got somebody for $72. And then on the other side, mm-hmm. the tenants aren't happy too. So it's like you're getting it from both sides. I was just about to say the one thing that I've always made from the beginning with my relationship with my property management companies is always start with gratitude, always be grateful, always Mm. acknowledge, always cheerlead, always pump up and always acknowledge how difficult it is for your teammate before, if I have an issue to have a conversation, I will always pump up. I will always cheerlead. I'll acknowledge and be grateful before we have a conversation about something I want to address. Because um, think about it for a second. Put yourself into their shoes. It is a very thankless and a difficult job. Totally. Totally. I, I wrote down three things because you made my head explode. I'm going <laughs> to grab one thing from over here. Because pro- like you know, nothing is more important in this business of being a rental housing provider than having good management. Oh, make a break. You, anybody can buy and raise capital and the wheel and deal, oh, and that's the fun stuff. From ownership to divest is the most important part. Totally. Lots of people like to, you know, like it's like the cliche, make money on the buy. Bull crap. <laughs> you go talk to Arlen Dolan, and he'll tell you about deals where he overpaid and made more money in the long run because he didn't have to mess with it in the middle. Yeah, but it's a, it's an incredibly thankless job management. We had a very small black binder mom kept in her desk that was every thank you we'd ever gotten. And I didn't realize until we were talking about this, like this is a, a handwritten thank you card from a client, and like it's filled inside and outside mm-hmm. and on the back. Especially when you're in management, especially if you're managing your own properties, or if you're listening and you're a property manager for third parties, when you get a thank you like that, hold on to it. Also, if you're an owner write handwritten thank yous, send people pictures or, or whatever. Like, it's awful. I was just reaching into my drawer. That's what I have in my in my drawers, a stack of, oh, hand, totally. of thank you cards. And I write them out all the time. Yes. Three a week, oh, totally. three a I week. I don't do it often enough, but I really, really should. The best thing you can do for your property manager in a practical business perspective, and I'm sure I wrote a blog post about this some point in time, have an agenda when you call your manager do not call to chat. They are too busy for that. If they want to chat, they'll call you or take them out for lunch and then you can chat. But they got too much stuff to do. I'm calling because email them before you call them. Here are the three things we need to talk about today. And if it can be an email instead of a phone call, let them go. No, absolutely. So let's consider that, pardon the pun, getting back to your book that you wrote. Uh, That was a previous chapter in your life. Hmm. When did you become a commercial realtor? How long ago has that been now? Yeah. So I got, I bought my first property in 2008. I got licensed in 2010. Okay. Came back from Ireland, was working remotely here. And on the same weekend that I decided to quit, I got fired from my marketing job uh, as part of downsizing before an acquisition, which was just providence in my opinion. So I got licensed in 2010. I think we sold our first apartment building in 2012. And every year after that, it was another 10% of the income. And I made the hard switch to an office that only does commercial in 2016. Thanks to a good coach who gave me a kick in the backside and said, you need to specialize. And so, I mean, in the commercial world, even though I'm a Remax guy, I don't belong to the MLS, don't have access, don't have to abide by the rules, don't have to put my listings anywhere I don't want to. And making that hard switch 
where if you wanted to sell all your townhouses or us, that's great. Let me refer you to our friend Jason or someone else. Yep. It's not yep. my thing. Yeah, it's been oh, an amazing focus. Absolutely. Okay, so just if you don't mind me putting you on the spot for a second, and it could be just ballpark number, like what kind of um, sure. volume did you guys do last year within your business? Totally. Yeah, last year, and it's funny, 2021 was great. In 2020, I actually did, I worked for a developer for a year. My wife said, go get a paycheck. I'm sure there are people on the call who have uh, real estate licenses or live in a commissioned world. It's tough. My wife said, stop it, go get a real job. And I did. And we still did overall volume of something like 20 million in 2020. In 2021, we grew that we did 38 million, which was about 280 doors. And then we did a couple foreclosure properties. We did two leases just to learn and a couple quarter sections of land. And we are on track to grow again, about 40% year over year. I mean, nice. You get into the commercial world where to go hunting, you know, to use a hunting metaphor, anybody remembers playing the Oregon Trail as a kid? Those average apartment buildings, my average deal size is just under 2 million bucks. Those are deer. And every so often you get a buffalo. <laughs> You're like, that for me is like a 500 unit building. Like I have a couple deals right now that'll be like $20 million. That's a very different equation. Right, right. So suffice it to say, you've got your finger on the pulse of, uh, from the commercial standpoint of what's going on in Edmonton and area. Is it just primarily the greater Edmonton area? No, we do pretty much anywhere in Alberta, except okay. for Calgary. Calgary is just very small and closely held, but we do a lot of Edmonton core and then secondary markets around Northern Alberta. Okay. Awesome. So, you know, Camrose, Vegreville, Rocky Mountain House, Grand yeah. Prairie. So just, I'm going to date this, everybody, uh, just so, just so for perspective, we're, we're having this conversation and, you know, let's call it Q2 of 2022. And uh, what do you see going on in the Edmonton marketplace right now from a standpoint of commercial, multifamily, mm -hmm. industrial? What are you seeing happening for activity on the street, like the boots on the street? Yeah, definitely. I don't know enough about, the only thing I know about residential real estate anymore is literally my street. It's the only thing I want. <laughs> it's a house where I live. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know the guy across the street sold in three days over list price. That's all I care about. And that's that's fairly common, right, at the moment. 100%, totally. The apartment side has really, like, since COVID hit, has been characterized by just this huge inflow of out-of-town capital. I would guess 70% of my phone calls right now are Ontario buyers, probably 15 or 20% from Ontario, 10 or so from Alberta, and five from the US. And so there is just a lot of capital chasing deals. So, sorry, Chris, would you say first it was the BC money that was the biggest share or Ontario? Used to be. Used to be the biggest money. Yeah. And I would say that, uh, you know, kind of like February 2021. In the same week, BC and Ontario both reaffirmed rent freezes and eviction moratoriums, and my phone exploded. <laughs> and we've gone from like two or three new leads a week to three, four, five a day, at least one of whom has in excess of $2 million in cash. Like it has been a remarkable turn. And so the market here where, I mean, like prices, per door prices haven't gone up necessarily for the same building. But the good deals, like you used to be able to get a really crappy building in the Black Triangle or in downtown if you paid cash for 65 to 75 a door. 
Now that's an absolute minimum of 80, 85. So you're up 25% for those really crap assets. For nicer stuff, a classic Queen Mary Park building has gone from being 90 or 95 up about 10, 10 a door to be that 100, 110. And a lot of the newer stuff continues to sell very rapidly for a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yields are like cap rates are getting compressed quite a bit. We're seeing bonds like the bond and fixed rates as well push up. So that is going to start to squeeze a little bit. But I don't think it's going to push us that much here. I think we're going to see a market where cap rates get brought down because people are willing to come after the quality of the asset and chase the migration. Yep. Are you starting to see now from a standpoint of the supply side, are you starting to see people that have maybe been sitting on some properties over the past while they're finally getting, oh, finally, I maybe have an opportunity to sell this place that's been a, and, and move on with life and get on with life. Are you seeing some of that as well? Definitely. And probably in three slightly different shades. Yeah. I, I call it the shadow inventory. And the shadow inventory is people totally. that maybe bought at a peak, been sitting on it and just been waiting for things to turn around a little bit. And now it finally mm. comes and they're going, okay, now I can get out. Yeah. There's always some of that. But what I am seeing is families that have, like, I have three people on the board. And you can see a whiteboard in the corner when we're on the wide angle. It's not up to date because we do too much right now for me to update that also. But we've got three families on the board that bought in in the 70s and 80s, and they have not transacted yet. That's where I think the big inventory change is coming. And they're doing a couple of things because this new CMHC program makes debt kind of independent of the rate, really long amortizations, really low. Like the, the government cut the fees in half. I don't know. Last time government lowered the cost of anything. Apparently, this is well. The thing. CMHC is dumping a whole bunch of money into the commercial oh, space. Like you know, it's thank goodness concerning. they lost all that market share because now they're getting a little bit aggressive. Oh yeah. Well, so Chris, they are dumping our money, our taxpayer money, into the system, <laughs> right? You know, the dumb thing too is though. I mean, like they may be going a little bit too crazy here, but I, you know, CMHC is a money making endeavor, so they're making money rather than using my tax dollars. So I, there's some of that I appreciate. Yeah. It's also, in other markets than Alberta, a smart idea. It will convince a reasonable number of condo developers to build dedicated rental construction. And in markets like BC and Ontario and some parts of Quebec and some of the Maritimes, and especially in the North, going to make a huge difference in terms of the availability of rentals. In Alberta, it's just too much damn money. So we're getting families that are taking this as an opportunity to get out of the market. Now, sometimes COVID has had a very real impact on these family dynasties because people are dead. And when grandpa's dead, now the kids have to figure out what to do with the property. And it's a lot easier to divide dollars than doors. So, you know, there are three big reasons people sell. Death, divorce, and discord. Death is a big thing. And a lot of people have decided that they'd rather do other things with their life than manage real estate. And some of these Families are making a very, like I have one family in particular, Chris, we want to be out of the market in three years. Help us figure out what to renovate, how to do our financials and, and how to make an orderly transition out of the business. So there are a lot of people who are making this slow exit yep. and there's a lot of new construction in the market too. Yep. Yeah, that's the one thing with Edmonton is there is, you know, up until recently, one of the, you know, 
I'm one of the biggest cheerleaders for Edmonton. I think it's a great investment opportunity, but and I've been invested in the market for 20 years. One of the biggest downsides of Edmonton has always been, but I believe the city is finally addressing it, has been urban sprawl. Like, honest to goodness, mm-hmm. we're over here. Look, a canola field. Let's knock it down. New subdivision, right? They're, the only thing stopping it from growth is Jasper and, and uh, Calgary. and mm-hmm. the other, Like, there's no, there's no boundaries. But I totally. believe the city has set aside that we're not growing out more. We're densifying in. Right. So they're they're letting mm-hmm. a lot of applications for infills happen. They're not going out. Mm-hmm. They're going up where they're taking big lots, subdividing. You can put a three house combo on it or knock down a couple of them and yeah. you now have an eight unit apartment building. And they're doing yeah. a lot of that as opposed to keep going outwards. Right. I see them still going out a fair bit as well, yeah. but they've definitely made it like dramatically simpler to do an infill application and the new council appears. you know, we just had an election in the fall, new council appears to be just as pro development as the old one. They just like now to add lots of little ornaments on the Christmas tree of development, like, Oh, we'll give you the extra, you know, extra 10 meters of height. If you install soul. Yep. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense to me, but thank you. I'll take it. Well, that's like why Jay and I, or Jason, who many of you my show would know Jason, um, we were having great conversation. There's some wonderful developments in the Blatchford area of doing with geothermals and solar. Mm-hmm. And when you actually factored in the amount of money the solar was kicking back into the revenue pot, it was actually a revenue generator, a couple grand a month in some some bill, some properties mm-hmm. we were looking at on new development. So there are a lots of cool things. But question for you. What are you seeing in the older apartment? Because, guys, here's a quick education. Chris can do this better than I can. There was a huge boom in the 80s in Edmonton. A lot of people built a whole bunch of properties. So a lot of the multifamily you will find will probably be late 70s, early 80s. That's when a lot of it was built. You'll also see another Mm -hmm. boom leading up into 2006, 2007. And I think there's going to be another boom right now where you'll see these different waves of all this new building. Okay. So... A typical multifamily property, a 1980s special in Edmonton. Is there an opportunity to, to make some money on them? Um, I know some of them have some deferred maintenance. Are you able to pick up at a price point, dump some money into it? Can you renovate it? Can you increase the clientele? Mm-hmm. Or, or can you make some money off of it is what I'm trying to get to. 100%. Yeah. Is there still life in these old... And actually, I think the the ones where it makes the most sense are actually probably more like a 1968 Mm. Those properties work. And our mutual friend, Mark Loeffler, has been doing a bunch of these. We've helped with a lot of them. And he's got some great videos on it. You can come into that market and, you know, for the sake of argument today, buy them for $100 a door. And, you know, your existing rents, like a one bedroom is going to be like seven, seven fifty, and a two bedroom is going to be eight to nine hundred dollars. You can do like Honestly, when Mark came to the market, I thought he was crazy. I thought he was going to screw it. Typically, like my, I own a building in Queen Mary Park. We might spend, there's three levels here, absolute minimum to get it re-rented. So you're just doing flooring or paint or like single component replacement, you know, two, three, four thousand $4,000. You do a big reno, you might spend ten dollars or $15,000. And then you might move that two bedroom rent from like, 825 to nine or from 850 to 950 about a hundred dollar lift to think 
in terms of physics, Mark figured out what the escape velocity is to really break free of the old rents. It's 30 grand. So you buy it for 100 a door, you put 30 grand into it. And that means like if you think of a classic old apartment building, they're blowing out the wall between the kitchen and the living room. They put an island, like all those cabinets are gone. Everything goes on the back wall then. New island, they put a nice frame of box in in the ceiling with pendant lights. You don't have to fix the stipple. All the doors trim, like in-suite laundry when you can. They're very limited on power supplies. This is tough. But dishwasher for sure. Everything else is just night. Recessed lighting, the whole nine yards. They turn those rents from eight fifty to eleven or twelve hundred. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you do the math. A three hundred dollar a unit increase is worth sixty to ninety thousand dollars worth of revenue or worth of value in the property you created. Yeah. So that is where you can actually burn it. Not one hundred percent. I had Mark on episode one hundred three on the podcast, yep. and um, you know. <laughs> and I questioned it. I really questioned it. And this is where sometimes mm-hmm. having 20 years of doing something in one market, I questioned it. And it still might be early. And I 100, don't get me wrong, I'm hoping yeah. Mark gets it done and makes it work. But I was having a hard time seeing in the neighborhoods he was buying that people would pay $1,250 for even no matter how nicely renovated it was. Yeah, he's early, but I don't think he's wrong. And the funny thing in Queen Mary Park, He's like, so <laughs> there's three buildings, my building, his building, and a new one called the George. Yep. And I am the old school. He has brought his old building into the 21st century. So my two-bedroom rent might be 950 His is 1150 But a two-bedroom at the George is $1,600. That's what new product in Queen Mary Park has to cost. So he's getting tenants the new fixtures that they want in an older wrapper and people are willing to jump through those hoops. It's the difference between feature-based decision-making and value-based decision-making. And it's kind of tough for me as an owner because I don't have 30 a door to drop into my building to get to the next stage. But I do think that bringing this product into the 21st century is the type of value creation most of us have to look at, if not now, in the next five or 10 years. No, I, I 100% hope he, he gets it. And from a couple standpoints, is number one, I sit there and I go, well, here's a an interesting irony of this conversation. So we're having a conversation and we're talking about somebody pushing rents on a two-bedroom to $1,250 for brand new, like a really nice, nicely renovated place. Mm-hmm. Some people are listening to this right now going, holy moly, $1,250 for a two-bedroom rent in my market <laughs> is a discount. That's affordable housing. Right now, and I sit there and I go, now every one of my houses that are rented in the 1850 rate for a brand new construction house, if they're going to start getting it for a four story walk up 1970 special, I'm pretty sure my new construction properties are now going to start getting into the 22 to 24 to 2800 dollar range within the next year or two. So go, Mark, go. Right. Oh, totally, totally. You know, and the funny thing is that during COVID, I mean, this this worked out brilliantly. In 2019, we sold my townhouse on the north side and rented a house in St. Albert, 800 meters from where I am today, with the plan that we would, you know, I got five kids, I'm not renovating with them in the house again. Find a place, buy it, renovate it, and then move while we're renting. I paid $2,200 a month for a 1,400 square foot bungalow built in the 70s. 
You know, you go to certain markets and it's worth it. Now, we'll throw Mark under the bus a little bit. Do I think that his model would work almost as well with less risk if he bought in nicer locations? For sure. Do I think that he's early enough and buying things well enough that he's got safety built in there? For sure. I mean, you and I talked before we were on the air. There are a couple of high profile legal issues happening in Saskatchewan right now. And you and I both have acquaintances over the years who have gone bankrupt or gone to jail or have just pieced out with investor money. The thing I love about watching guys like you and Jason or Mark Loeffler work is that there's so much value brought into a property. There is no lipstick here. Like new construction is new construction or the stuff that Mark does is so hardcore value oriented you know, and is thinking about what tenants really want to, I say in the book, the stuff you touch every day should be nice. They absolutely take that to heart. Yeah. There are a lot of people right now running around, especially in apartment building land, chasing the appearance. They're, they're chasing performance. They're chasing the appearance of value add, but they're not putting the money and the effort into the building efficiently and they don't have a system. And that's where I start to get worried about people. No, I 100% agree. If somebody's you know, and we, Mark and I walk through it and, you know, buying it, say 90 a door, 95 a door, putting 30 in, you're into it for 125. The numbers are starting to make sense. But if somebody is, and, and where people made mistakes during a boom before was they bought things in the 140 range, they put nothing into it, and then they were condo converting it to try to sell it at 170 a door. And actually some people bought it at 170 a door and that was a very bad day for that. And they put nobody added anything to the value of the property other than just upcharging 100%. it to the next person buying. And they failed to ask the most important question, which is you're selling it to these investors. What about the next guy? Like it's the first nation think about this like seventh gen. Like, you know, what happens to the person after that? Like we put a new mortgage on my building. I know that when it comes due in 2030, I have to have a clear vision for the next 10 years or I need it to sell it before that point. Yep. And it's funny that you mentioned condo conversions, a place where there's huge value right now, putting those converted condos back together as rental product. Yep. And there are buyers will go out and try and do it. I think I'm the only guy in, Al in Canada that I'm aware of, for sure in Alberta, who actually does that on behalf of sellers. And I have four projects, one that we're just getting contracts signed today on, where we're putting them back together. Most of those are little 15, 20 unit buildings. We did a 20 unit building last year. One of them is 200 units. And we're bringing <laughs> the big kumbaya, everybody come together and we can turn that building around. But, you know, they're fundamentally a flawed method of ownership. Yeah. And, and the other thing, and I know you and I had a conversation of this offline up, probably a, a month ago when we were setting this up, I think there's also another huge opportunities for, for deep pocket money. Like don't get, this isn't mm -hmm. for mom and pop with a hundred thousand dollars to go buy a suited house. This is for somebody with multiple 20 plus million that there are some underperforming under land utilized townhome projects in Edmonton that mm -hmm. literally could be bulldozed and where mm -hmm. there's maybe 30 properties on there now after they're done there could be 70 80 or 90 after they're done which is a better use of land yeah yeah definitely and it's funny you go back to the um 
Some of them have actually traded. Some of the old, old money complexes like McLab has let some go. But when you look at the families that have been here since the 50s, like Kitty Corner to West Edmonton Mall in the West End, there is a quarter section with like, I don't know, 15 little fourplexes on it. It's a ridiculously low density. It's just there is holding. It's it's not even an income property. That's just holding income. It might pay your tax bill. And those families were so smart. They could have done tons to it. They just decided to wait. And I should say for investors, just because I get this question a lot about my particular practice, how much money is enough money to go buy apartments? Do you have a guess? Like what in your mind, when you work with your coaching clients, how much do you need to have or be able to raise before you chase apartments? Well, here's the thing. Most in Edmonton, the number's a lot less than you think. That's the thing I will tell people. Most people, I would bet the starting thing is a half a million bucks or more as a starting point. Yeah. That most people's perspective. Yeah. We were working with some clients that got into an eight unit new construction townhome project and it was 2.4 million. They got into it for around 400,000 for eight freehold townhomes, brand new at 300 a door. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, it does work. I think the thing about every boom market is that like we are incredibly busy. I have a team. Yep. As a rule, I don't work with buyers. I work to find listings and the rest of my team keeps tabs on buyers. And yeah, I like, I think that to come in, it's funny that we're saying this out loud. I'm not intending this as a sales pitch for people who are like, Oh, I can get in with just a quarter million bucks because that is inherently risky. <laughs> you have, yep. have a need for reserves, but I think it is interesting from my perspective. When I look at who I've chosen to work with in the last little while, you know, just for me, like across the board, I don't, as a rule, work with buyers. They need a personal relationship connection to me and large cash. The one thing I do want to say in a market like this, <laughs> don't lock it up and then raise the money. You have to do it the other way around yep. because the market's so small that your reputation will get burned very quickly. If you piece out of a couple of deals midway because you couldn't raise the capital, you'll stop seeing listings real fast. No, I totally agree. You know, what's the old saying? And I think it was either Pierre Paul, it might have been Don that said it is, you know, you don't go into it, you grow into it, right? And your reputation mm -hmm. is so much more valuable in multifamily because it's a smaller world, right? Big couple time. couple yeah, boom deals, a, a couple non-removals of conditions, and <laughs> mm -hmm. you'll you'll see how fast your phone doesn't ring after that, right? Totally. Yeah. You got to get in and just do some small deals. Like you're much better to come in and do a couple little deals. Your firsts are always going to be, you know, singles or maybe doubles. You're not going to yeah. get a home run the first couple. Just let it go. Get a deal that you can afford that makes some sense to you and grow up from there. It's way better to come in and do a 10 plex or a two than to wait for the 40 plex. No, I totally agree. So I know you probably have conversations all the time about people, well, Edmonton, I've heard about it. I saw a video. This looks good. This looks promising. And you probably feel like you're repeating the same things over and over and over again about Edmonton. And so let's do, we're doing a recording right now. And we're going to, you know, if you mm -hmm. want, you can clip this and play it to whoever you wants to listen after the fact. What advice would you give somebody that's just inquiring about Edmonton and getting into the Edmonton market for real estate from a lenses of commercial multifamily properties? What advice do you give people every time? 100%. Great question. Totally. And yeah, and my business partner, Luke, will always laugh because 
some of these things are are everyone's question all the time. And I start every conversation with a potential client by just being super curious. The part that people are often the least aware of is the economic fundamentals, which I, again, I feel like Mr. Campbell is on my shoulder yeah. tapping the side of my head. And even in my conversation with Pierre Paul, like we're talking frequently about immigration. The Alberta government's economic dashboard, I look at frequently. I look at rates and lots of other things, but I'm looking at those numbers, especially right now when it comes to immigration and kind of the interesting, like we've got some brain drain going to the US, we've got some old rich white guys going to Victoria. Most of the immigration we have is actually international coming here. And a lot of it is high end, like small anecdote. So Luke Gervais, who's my business partner, three weeks ago, he was like, yeah, I need, I'm not going to be able to make this tour on Thursday. He's picking up some people from through church. He's, he got roped into picking two people up from the airport. They're immigrating here from India. They're both dentists. He's flying back every two weeks to keep his practice in India going. They're not showing up and driving a cab for a living. So that is huge. So the big thing is like, what's the economic underpinning? It's a lot more diverse than the oil and gas thing we think it is. Apartment buildings here are going to come in two really general varieties, the existing stock and the new build. The new build stuff is really hard to get into right now, as you know, because the cost of construction is just insane and builders won't give you a price until it's done. They just, they can't. They used to, they used to up they until to. about, up about till about four, three, four months ago. Totally. And now I don't have a single builder who will actually give you a price until they're, at least the lumber is locked in. Yeah. Now the new stuff is great. And if you look at the big picture, like we went from a, an apartment universe that's about 60, 65,000 units in the primary rental market, we've added 20,000 between what's already done and what's in the pipeline in the next 12 to 18 months. I think we're going to be at something like 85,000 units in the universe. That's a huge growth. Now, lots of that is institutional product, but a lot of it is these little fourplexes, eightplexes, you know, mid-sized buildings. The existing product, then we'll go back to the map, and we actually have an interactive map I should send you a link to. There are a couple of like little pockets like Queen Mary Park that is kind of like your classic, every corner of the block is there. But everything, or like right around the university, it's built in the 60s, they just had this solid block of apartment buildings. Everything else is scattered. We'll have an arterial road like 149th Street or Stony Plain Road. And they'll be just along that strip and maybe a block or two off. But it's this very dispersed, kind of stretched out market. And so the apartment building world here is all over the place. And frequently, you'd look at a place like Stony Plain Road or even 149th Street or, you know, getting into the Black Triangle, 118th Ave. It is block by block. And they're, you know, I have a building for sale right now that's five blocks off 118th Ave. It's beautiful. It's suburban. It's comfy. It's families. But you go five blocks south and you got hookers and blow. (laughs) It's a very nuanced market. Yeah. So suffice it to say, in my personal opinion, and I can say this, and I'm saying it on behalf of you, have quality representation of getting in. If you're going to try to do this on your own or just try to wing it and figure it out by just driving there and drive around and try to pick up things on your own or or find a, a builder and just go negotiate on your own, 
have somebody with 20 plus years of experience that can show mm-hmm. you the good, the bad, and the ugly and has your best interest in heart. Chris Davies would be one of those people Absolutely. in the commercial world Absolutely. that I would recommend too as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have a lot of good property managers who will quite cheerfully warn you about buildings. Yeah. And you made yeah. me realize there's one thing I want to point out. I'm seeing a lot of right now, folks running around trying to wholesale apartment buildings. <laughs> and they don't even have a contract on it. <laughs> <laughs> that also totally. Yeah. Like guys who don't have paper on it. I mean, like it is theoretically possible to wholesale an apartment building in the real world. I have seen it happen like four times in 12 years of doing this job. And especially if you think you're going to pick up an apartment deal from a wholesaler, you're not going to get the representation and protection. Like you better really know what you're doing before you take that contract. The um, <laughs> the crap I've seen in the last year will just blow your mind. And I had one other half thought that's totally left my brain, Russell. Yeah, and, and, and here's like, the, the other thing I tell people is as well is... Um, a lot of people are bringing their local market paradigms, Ontario's and BC's and stuff like that, and bringing mm-hmm. it into Alberta. Same country, different things. And and a lot of people in other things are going, well, just all I have to do is breathe, fog a mirror, buy anything, and it'll go up in value $100,000 mm-hmm. a month. Yes, let's hope that does that in Edmonton. But what's your plan if it doesn't? Because... If you don't know your tenant profile, if you don't match your tenant to the house, to the right area, you're going to have a very bad ownership experience and you're going to be cursing real estate in a few years down the road. And I think you and I, I mean, like, and I would probably include someone like Arlen in the same conversation because we've all worked a lot at raising money. The same type of pitch you might give an investor about a property in Toronto is very different here. Like when I've raised capital before, I don't include appreciation, full stop. Yeah. Arlen <laughs> famously- He doesn't does even include, include a cash flow. flow. <laughs> yeah. No, he's like, we're buying it. God only knows what's gonna happen to it. We're yeah. just buying the best box we can. It is that different. I mean, yeah, the tenancy laws are different. We can just crank the rents if we want to, but man, you gotta have a totally different paradigm when it comes to your investors. And I do a lot, I mean, it's where I get involved frequently in deals is helping people structure the investment in the equity. And I have a really great lawyer who's helping do that too. We do it together that you can, you know, there are lots of ways to structure it that prioritize the safety and the returns for your investor, but without promising them 8% appreciation like you might do in St. Catharines. Yeah. Well, here's the thing is I think a lot of people's expectations are a little bit askew at the moment. Everybody, Mm -hmm. and I have a conversation with people all the time and they're just sitting there going, well, geez, my place, you know, what do you mean you're not forecasting? It's going to go up a hundred thousand dollars in a couple months, or I'm going to, I'm going to put in $10,000 and my appraised value is going to be $170,000 more. Like, what do you mean it's not going to happen? Like, I, I think people's expectations are just a little bit amiss at the moment, which is totally fine. It, it is what it is. Yeah. And I think there's going to be ebbs and flows and that's going to pivot in other markets. And I have a feeling we're going to get a little bit more of that in Alberta and Edmonton in the next little while. Mm-hmm. But here's what I want to leave with here, Chris. And I, I know how busy you are and you're helping clients out on a daily basis. And 
we're probably somebody's maybe been listening to this episode going, holy moly, you guys have talked death of tenants, you've talked recessions, you've talked, uh, you know, bankruptcies, you've talked, uh, you know, what was the term you use? Hookers and blow, if you will. Hookers and blow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's right. You've talked uh, the black triangle. These guys, it's, you don't have a very positive outlook on real estate right now, do you? But mm-hmm. I, I think it's the opposite is we're real about what can go wrong in order to know what can go wrong in order to have all the good stuff. In your opinion, Chris, why have you been in real estate all these years and why do you love it so much? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm, I am a huge fan of problem solving and negotiation is my favorite part of this business. But at the end of the day, like I still own that very first townhouse that I ever bought in 08. Mom and I still own it. And we are only now on our third set of tenants. We had one tenant who stayed for 10 years, small blip with another group, another tenant there for now, what, four years, five years? I don't care what it's worth now. I care that they paid that mortgage down from $180,000 to one twenty-two. They paid me $60,000 worth of free money. Like They just keep on running. And when you do well with it, there is no other way to match it. I mean, you know, especially getting into apartment buildings, it comes with risks. We've talked lots about risks, but you think about what we talked about, you know, like Mark, you know, you buy a building for a hundred, you put 30 into it. And then between refinancing and the market going, like, even if we just got to where pricing for a similar building in a poor market in Ontario, like Windsor might be, it's 200 a door. Yep. You've just made let's call it 50 a door, but I, like I own a 20 plex. I would like a couple hundred thousand dollars, please. So the ability to harness this many other sources of streams of income is huge. So I love it because I'm, I'm always involved helping people uh, be involved in it. And commercial real estate, as a rule, pays pretty well if you're good at it. As a landlord, most of it is set and forget once it's on track. And all those little streams of income just keep coming through. Yep. I hope that was a coherent answer. Well, absolutely. I have two halves of my brain. I have the landlord side and I have the real estate broker side. And so I love both of them in different ways. Well, I think really if I was to encapsulate it, which you did a fantastic job, but what I heard was there are risks. Understand what those risks are. Mitigate those risks because on the other side, there's incredible reward if you can able to manage mm-hmm. and mitigate the risk and have sustainability and longevity to stick it out for the long term in this game. Absolutely. Right on. One final thing, and here's a question I usually leave off with, with everybody here, and I'll let you go after this one question here. But before we do, but before I let I ask this last question, I just wanted to acknowledge you, Chris. You've always been such a wonderful, upbeat, positive guy, and you're very giving and you're always come from a place of service. You have a servant's heart and you come from a place of uh, inspiration and helping others. And I just wanted to just acknowledge you for the way you've shown up over the years and and how you've grown over these years. It's it's tremendous. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's you and I have both had some fairly tough spots, you know, since we got to know each other. And, you know, I think you and I have both had really productive conversation when we supported each other. So I'm glad that I've been that servant yep. to you when I can. Oh, awesome. So just thank you. Um, And here's the final question. So let's say somebody is sitting mm-hmm. here and they're maybe feeling a little bit stuck. 
maybe they're just feeling a little stuck and just not sure what the next step is for them within the, the realm of real estate. What advice would you give that person to help them get unstuck and get them into some action? I'm parsing that one a little bit. I like I said before that I literally say, like I, I always approach every conversation saying that I'm curious. I literally have a post-it note on the wall that says I'm curious. In the business of real estate investing, your critical success event, whether it's huge apartment blocks and towers or it's your first condo, is writing offers and getting offers accepted, but writing offers. You put it out there and you wait for it to come back. If you're feeling stuck, get out there and write some offers. See what sticks. Yep. You know That's followed closely by the second thing. If you're feeling stuck, you need to connect with someone. So personally, yesterday I was feeling stuck about growing my team, I reached out to my friend, Julie Chu, who does industrial and said, coffee next week, I need to pick your brain and I need a lift to get unstuck. If someone can help lift you up, that's great. If you're an investor and you want to get unstuck, go write an offer. It will get everything else in your life moving. Wow. Well, Chris, I've been sleeping at the switch here. I've been just, you've been dropping so much fire here. I've been <laughs> sleeping at the switch and hitting the button here. And obviously there's always... Yeah. Huge bombs being dropped. Yeah, man. Right? <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm just been, happy, man. I've been just so engrossed in our conversation. I've been asleep at the switch with all the buttons here. But um, Chris, just wanted to thank you one more time. That was a, a wonderful conversation. Now that things are opening up a lot more, I'm going to be making my monthly trip back into Edmonton. It's been far too long since been there. And um, I want to come see you. I want to see, the, see mm -hmm. the family. I'd love to, you know, us to break bread, maybe have a scotch or two or something. And then while mm -hmm. we're out there and, and uh, you know, it's been far too long. So, so Absolutely. thank you for, for all your time and everything you've given here today. I'm glad to be here. I uh, actually, if you're planning or if other people are planning a trip, Yep. The uh, Edmonton Real Estate Forum and the Western Canadian Apartment Conference. I don't run either event. I just go to them yep. May 17th and 18th. I already got a bunch of clients who are coming. We're probably going to throw some sort of a party. But if you get a chance to line up your trip with that, they're great events. And I think you'd find that it's uh, highly entertaining. Oh, and I've, if not I'm quite remiss here, Chris, about um, what was what would be the best place to get a hold of you? I've got your your website up here. Mm -hmm. Is this the best place to get a hold of you for your website? Yeah, the office website's the best place uh, for the moment to find listings and things or to catch me on LinkedIn. We're in the middle of doing a fairly significant uh, redesign of a whole bunch of my online presence, thanks to my coach kicking me in the butt. Yeah, and the best place is chris at chrisdavies.com or .ca? Uh, .ca, yeah. .ca, perfect. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you very much. Wonderful catching up with you. And guys, ladies and gentlemen, until the next one, talk to you very soon. Bye for now. So what did you think of today's episode? Did you enjoy it? Did you get a, you know, did it, did it, maybe I'll ask a question. Did it frighten you off from uh, wanting to keep uh, buying real estate? Did it frighten you off on some of the tenant stories that we talked about? Did it frighten you off on, you know, maybe not wanting to get in this game. Did it frighten you off? Maybe you're going to sell all your portfolio and just go bliss out and go down to the Burning Man and go to Coachella and all those kind of things and just kind of bliss out with Kumbaya. Mm. Right? Or did it fire you up? Did it fire you up and say, you know what? I got what it takes. I got what it takes to go through all those things. I got what it takes to have that staying power. I got what it takes in order to be a successful real estate investor. And you know what? I just don't have the miles under me yet. 
I'm going to prove this. I'm going to make it work. Okay, so here's a message that I want to leave with everybody here. And I'm just going to speak from the heart here for a second. And this is something that um, I had a conversation with one of my coaching clients just recently. And um, we were having a conversation about, and this conversation happens all the time. And when you're real estate investing in your life, you will ask a lot of good questions. And the question of what if, what if will always come up, always does. It's one of those things. You know, for example, let's talk in the context of real estate. What if a deal goes sideways? What if I make a mistake? What if I fall flat on my face and people laugh at me? What if things go wrong? What if the worst case scenario happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if interest rates go through the roof? What if all these problems occur? Now, those are very important and powerful questions to ask. And I'm a very big proponent. I'm not here to be Mr. Pollyanna and just say, yeah, la, 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 la. There's no problems in, wor- in the world. Everything is, everything is wonderful. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to say that. You know, look at the what ifs. What can go wrong? Like those things are truly important conversations to have. But here's what I'm going to offer to each and every one of you is I'm a firm believer in setting the game up to win. Frame the question so it's a win. So frame the question, no matter how the question is answered, it's a winning result. For example, every one of those what if could go wrongs. What if, you know, you look foolish? What if you fall flat in your face? What if a deal goes sideways? What if, what if, what if, what if? What if you framed it as by anything that can go wrong, you get to discover what you're made of. You get to discover the strength, the inner strength within, the courage to keep moving forward no matter what goes wrong. What if it goes wrong? Great. What if it goes wrong? Awesome. I get to prove what I'm made of. I get to prove what I can accomplish. Okay, but here's another way of looking at the what if question. What if you win? What if you succeed? What if you put that offer on that place and it goes through and you get it and in five years from now, it's worth $100,000 more? What if you approach that person that you've been afraid to approach on maybe asking them as a capital partner? What if you approach them and you make them an irresistible offer, the offer that they can't refuse? And what if they say yes? What if you win? How about that as a powerful frame of what if? So 100% ask the question of what can go wrong? What if I make a mistake? But that's where you get to prove what's inside you. That's what you get to prove what you're made of. But what if you win? What if you get the result? What if you succeed? That's what you get to prove what you're capable of. That's what you get to prove what you can accomplish more. That's what you get to prove by inspiring others. And that's what you get to prove to pouring into others in your circle. And that's what you get to prove to your family, to your kids, to your parents. Everyone around is, what if you win? And leave you with that question here today. What if? What a wonderful, powerful question. And no matter what the answer comes out of the what if, what if you fail or what if you win? frame the question so it's always a win-win scenario. All right, guys. Hope you had yourself a wonderful day. If any of you are ever interested in having a consultation or maybe, you know, take a second look at your portfolio or portfolio review, or maybe you want to, you know, just a second pair of eyes on what you're doing and you just maybe even just need somebody with, you know, 20 plus years of experience to give you a thumbs up or thumbs down, right? I won't pull any punches. I'll give you my personal opinion on what you're doing. And sometimes, what if? 
What if you have a course of action change? What if you learn one new thing and it pivots you into buying another property? And what if that one more place generates another $100,000 to your family future for the next, in the next five to seven years? What if? All right, gang, have yourself a wonderful day. Russell Westcott signing off. And remember, in every interaction you have with another person, always, always, always leave them feeling inspired, encouraged, and always come from a place of love. Bye for now, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Russell Westcott Podcast. Before you run off, could you do us one final favor? Wherever you're listening to this episode, we encourage you to leave a review, share with your friends, and subscribe so you can receive the latest episode to keep you feeling inspired and encouraged for the entire week. Visit www.russellwestcott.com for more information, support resources, and upcoming speaking engagements near you. Bye for now.